Hi everybody, JP here. Just wanted to wish you a very happy 4th of July, a happy Independence Day for myself and Dr. Wang to all of our American listeners. It's a great holiday and my favorite day of the year. As you'll soon hear, today's episode could not be more appropriate as we discuss changes to neurosurgical training and access for some of our fellow Americans. With that, let's get to the show. Happy 4th. Welcome to the Nursery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today, we are absolutely delighted to be joined by our guest, Fernando Valle. I got to know Fernando because he was the program director at USF in Tampa for neurosurgery for many, many years, and, uh, and having visited him, the residents absolutely love him. Fernando has now taken a new post. Uh, he is now the chair of neurosurgery at Medical College of Georgia. So, Fernando, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you. And uh, just a quick clarification, I prefer to pronounce my last name as Vale. And again, it's in honor of my dad, he liked to pronounce it that way. Ah, Vale, not Valle. Okay, good. Excellent. Right. Excellent. So, so, Fernando, tell us a little bit about your journey, how you sort of got started in neurosurgery, how you sort of rose to prominence, your, your, the places you've been, the paths you've taken. Well, you know, let, let me start. I was uh, born and raised in Puerto Rico. And uh, I will say uh, from early in life, I wanted to be a doctor. And uh, you could blame my old, older brother who also wanted to be a, a doctor. And as a matter of fact, he's a general surgeon. And then I, I uh, was fortunate enough to uh, get to medical school in Puerto Rico. You know, my, I come from a very humble background. My mom and dad were very simple. Uh, dad was a person of the land. He was an agronomist, and his dream was to be a great farmer. Uh, my mom was a teacher, and we were very simple. And uh, so uh, it was very hard in those days for me to travel to the U.S. to do my med school or college. So in that situation, I stayed in Puerto Rico. I went through University of Puerto Rico, did my college, did very well. Then after that, I went to the medical school, University of Puerto Rico. And uh, fortunately for me, I was top in the class. And then I matched in uh, University of Alabama, Birmingham. And that was around 1991. I did my residency there. And then after that, I always dreamed. My dream was to go back. Now, you know how life is. It's a journey. It's not a destination. So I've been trying to get back more or less since 1991, but I'm very happy where I am right now. Uh, however, I did keep a connection with Puerto Rico in many different ways. Can you tell us about those ways? Okay. Well, first, uh, uh, from uh, my early days when I was finishing my residency, I went back to PR. And of course, you know, like any other good Puerto Rican, I did try to get a job in Puerto Rico, but unfortunately, due to this or that, it didn't happen. And I was looking into an academic job. 
during that time, I did get to meet uh, Nathan Riskinson, who was the chair at the University of Puerto Rico program, and then Ricardo Brau, who became a good friend of mine, and wa- followed him in the chair position. Uh, but my connection there did not stop. Then I, I was fortunate enough to get a job at USF, University of South Florida in Tampa. And uh, with the help of Dr. Brown, as a matter of fact, an idea of Dr. Brown was for me to train the residents of Puerto Rico uh, for their functional and epilepsy rotation. So for about 10, maybe 12 years, I trained them for three months. One by one, they came to Tampa and they got exposed to epilepsy and functional. So I was program director during those days. I was director of the epilepsy and functional division. So it was very fun. And I got to know all of these residents for the last 12 years. And Dr. Valle, I've, I've seen many of the Puerto Rican residents do fellowships at, or they were doing fellowships at USF when you were program director. Is that correct? Uh, correct. Uh, they did some of them uh, work in our spine, uh, in the spine program with Dr. Juan Uribe. Uh, they came back and they have been uh, pretty much in touch with the Tampa program since then. Yeah, and, and you, I, we were talking about this before, but I, I, I hope I'm not misspeaking, but you're the first um, program chairman in the U.S. that's of Puerto Rican uh, birth and origin. Is that correct? I could consider myself lucky. Uh, but, you know, for all that, it requires hard work. And the answer, the right answer or the answer to your question is yes, you are correct. Now, I, you know, I don't want to focus on that one aspect of you so much, but it is sort of what I wanted to talk about in this podcast. I know you're a spine surgeon. I know you wrote some very seminal papers with Mark Hadley about spinal cord injury, and now you're a program chairman. But I wanted to get into this topic of Puerto Rico deeper with you because you're a real renaissance man and intellectual. And this morning, we had our graduation speeches from our uh, chief residents. And we have two Puerto Ricans here in Miami. One is Ian Cahigas, who went to MIT for college from Puerto Rico. And he's from the western side, Aguadilla. And and also Roberto Perez-Roman, who is one of our infolded spine fellows, who I've gotten to know very well. And, and I found that you know they've really taught me a lot about Puerto Rico, the relationship of Puerto Rico to America, because it is quite complicated, isn't it? Uh, you're correct. Uh, first, uh, let me say a few things. You know, in my early days, I was a spine surgeon. Now, however, my main interest uh, today is functional epilepsy. And, uh, and that's where I spend my days training my fellow Puerto Rican residents. Now, uh, Puerto Rico has a very unique relationship. And uh, that's always a topic of conversation. We're not a state but we're not independent. We're related. We're connected to America. And, uh, and this is a unique political system, what we call a commonwealth. So basically, we preserve our U.S. citizenship, but fortunate for us, we don't pay taxes. Uh, but we do serve in the military for the most part, and we do have our duty and rights to defend the flag of America. Yeah, I do want to come back to that because 
I think there's an outsized representation in not only the general military population, but special forces of Puerto Rican Americans, I'm going to call them, right? Because really, Puerto Rico is, part, I, I believe, part of America, even though it's a unique status, and we can really go deep into that. But let's talk about the health care there. Because it is different, right? So Puerto Rico um, is similar to America, but when you're a doctor in Puerto Rico, there are some differences in how how healthcare runs there, right? It seems that way, at least to me. Well, it's uh, you know we still have Medicare and we still have uh, CMS, FDA. All is similar. What it tends to be a little bit different uh, is the government-based system. Uh, there is a strong government support in the healthcare system. The medical school is the state, what we call the Centro Medico. The flagship of healthcare in Puerto Rico is also part of the government. So the state by itself support healthcare probably a lot more than in a in continental USA. So uh, so uh, it is a little bit different. We do have similar players. We may have Blue Cross, Blue Shield. We may have other uh, private insurances, if you want to say that, that are available for the community. But at the end of the day, there is a lot of government support in the healthcare. And how would you say from your memories of living there, how does that translate to the experiences, not only for the patients, but for the young people following our profession who are seeking training in both medicine and eventually in whatever specialty they go into? Do you think that the training experience is comparable to the residents in the continental United States working in our system? Uh, let me tell you, the medical school is no different than any other medical school. And the residency programs in Puerto Rico are equal to any other program. Now, we may have less resources, if you want to put it that way, but when it comes to training, when it comes to skill set, when it comes to the basic knowledge of being a good doctor, Puerto Ricans are well-trained. Hmm. Yeah, I you know, I, I was reminded of, of an incident that happened, I want to say it was about three or four years ago, where um, the your the flagship university, as you say, it's it's very much sort of a government institution, kind of like a county hospital, right? And and basically I think it was like in October, the budget had already cons- been consumed and they had to basically shut down a lot of the operations. Uh, do you remember this incident, uh, Dr. Valet? Uh, yes, I mean, uh, it have been, uh, you know, I would say Puerto Rico have, uh, you could call it the triple crush syndrome, uh, bad administration from one side, hurricane from another side, earthquake from another one, all that had led to a big economical crisis. And unfortunately, when there is no money, you have to cut services. And it has happened before, and it's an unfortunate event, and we have somehow learned to adapt to those situations. 
Yeah, I remember reading about it and I thought it was very unfortunate because a lot of the folks in training, like in, in, in medical school and residency and whatnot, they were sort of, their education was, I don't want to say it's halted, but it was certainly uh, held back by, as you said, these budgetary elements, which they sound like they're rather unavoidable, right? They sounded like maybe it's a consequence of being a smaller place, right? Because the system is smaller, whereas the US system is so large, it, there's more uh, ways around problems, right? Because um, it's 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 we're like all of continental Europe, right? So it's it's very interesting. But then recently, uh, we were asked at Miami to potentially take in residents because the program in Puerto Rico, the the one residency program in neurosurgery, uh, has had to um, has shut down. And, in, and when that happens in, in any American program, then the duty is to find places for all of the residents that are currently uh, participating. That's correct, right? Uh, correct. I mean, uh, you know, it is an unfortunately, uh, unfortunate set of events. And uh, I would have to say right now from the get-go, this is a big loss. And this is a big loss for Puerto Rico. This is a big loss for the medical school. This is a big loss for the residents. So this is a big deal. This is a big deal for the island. And unfortunately, like you said, we're kind of isolated. It's nice to be an island. It's nice to be in the tropics. But we don't have that highway that connects to continental U.S. right away. So we're, in a sense, a little bit isolated. But unfortunately, that means that this is a major loss to the, to the entire country. Well, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think anyone, all of us in this conversation, many of our listeners uh, work every day in an academic setting where we have trainees in neurosurgery, such as myself. And I think all of us remember as we went through the phases of our career to get to whatever level we all are today, we came up in that same setting where when we were first introduced to the field and we first got our toes dipped in the water, it was in a setting where there were residents who were maybe more approachable than attendings. You could converse with them more easily. They, they could explain things at your own level better when you're first entering the field. And from a very practical standpoint, for any medical student trying to break into the field today, Away rotations and letters of recommendation often hinge on connections from your home residency and kind of learning the ropes among your friends who show you the way so that you can go out and perform well during your away rotations. How, I mean, how do you think this is going to impact medical students with an interest in neurosurgery in Puerto Rico? And maybe what, what advice could you offer them now that they've lost access to a home residency? Well, uh, JP, this is a big deal. I mean, uh, and again, I mean, it's, it's going to hurt the medical school, but it's going to hurt everybody because we're not talking about future neurosurgery residents. If you look at the number of neurosurgeons in Puerto Rico have been more or less stable, and, and that's a concern because you have an aging population that is going to need uh, neurosurgical care. Not only that, now you have a program to expose those students to neurosurgery. So I'm hoping that the interest is still going to be there. We just have to adapt or this institution will have to adapt to maintain that interest and hopefully one day revive the residency again. So it's a big, it's a big concern. Medical students need to be exposed to neurosurgery and where they're going to go now. It's very yeah, hard you know, for none to get exposed to neurosurgery as a student. 
Yeah, so Fernando, you're, you know, and some some of the folks may not be aware of this, but programs do close or have to, they're forced to shut down periodically all over America, right? And there is a the mechanism in place for, for making this right by the current residents. So you're taking in one or two of these residents from Puerto Rico, correct? Well, we're in the process of helping them to be part of our institution. Yeah, that's, that's, I have to say, that's one of the wonderful things about, uh, medical education in this country, which is that when this happens, you know, folks aren't left truly stranded. Obviously, it's highly disruptive to them to have to move and and reacclimate to a new program with a new culture and all that. But but it's admirable that, that you're doing this in an effort to support and buttress those folks. And hopefully some of them uh, will be able to continue their careers as neurosurgeons or, or all of them will be able to. And I want you to comment a little bit about, you know, the patriotism intrinsic to the island, because sometimes like folks like me who, who've only visited Puerto Rico as, as a vacationer for a national meeting or something like that, a medical meeting, just see, you know, well, Puerto Ricans, they like to have the Puerto Rican flag and all this stuff. But actually, you know, your, your own family have been in the U.S. military. Is that correct? Correct. My son is uh, first lieutenant uh, U.S. Marines. And, and what, what do you think it is that drives the outsized representation of of young men and women from the island to enroll and enlist in, in the U.S. military? Well, we're a very unique culture. And, uh, and uh, I mean, we, you could say that we're all Puerto Ricans, but we're Puerto Ricans, Americans. And for that, we're very proud of our background, our connections. So, uh, but at the same time, I feel that we're very happy people. And has been so happy. We were very grateful, and we are willing to sacrifice whatever we need to help somebody else. And and most Puerto Ricans feel strongly American. Most of us, and and because we understand the process, we have been together for over a hundred years now, and we know that we have better quality of life, better living standards than most of the rest of. South, South America. So we're very happy to give back. Now, I want to say something about, before we keep going into this, I would like to say something about the quality of residents in Puerto Rico. I have trained and I've seen many of them. And I want to make this clear, that for the most part, the, re- the neurosurgery residents in Puerto Rico, they're not good. They're excellent. <laughs> they are skilled surgeons. They have great judgment. They, unfortunately, have gone for the most part to the continental U.S., but that may be related to the limitations of the system. But for the most part, they are excellent neurosurgeons. Yes, you know, when uh, when preparing for this episode, I, I did my best to read information about the recent loss of accreditation of the program. And of course, the ACGME has uh, kept a tight lip about the process and none of the parties involved were, were, were really willing to go on the record and give details about the process. But the one thing that everyone said across the board was that it was by no means an issue of performance, by no means an issue of quality, and they even went so far as to list the number of cases performed each year. And as you say, it, it seems to be a very busy program, which anywhere, in particular in Puerto Rico, should turn out high-quality, busy, uh, very skilled residents. Um, so maybe 
Could you make a pitch for these folks trying to find new homes and new places to train across the country? Uh, absolutely. I would support any of them to find a place. I mean, uh, their, their, their training is excellent. And, and, and again, why this happen? I mean, I can say this, and you all know this. Most of the people don't quit people. They, they, I mean, most of the people, I'm sorry, let's rephrase this. Most of the people quit people, not the institution. So Puerto Rico and healthcare, medical school is not the issue. It's what happened. There was a disconnection between the leaders and the residents, the boots on the ground that led to this horrible outcome. But for the most part, like I said, neurosurgeons in Puerto Rico, the, the Department of Neurosurgery, they're, they're full of good people with good intentions. The residents are great. They work hard. They work harder than any other resident. However, there was a disconnection. There was a disconnection and, and, and this disconnection from reality, what led to this poor outcome. And again, as a leader that you, Mike, I am, we always have to look our self first and own our own failures because I think that this is a leadership issue. What happened to the leaders that they didn't see it on time? And you can look at it. I mean, probation, the program was on probation for at least three years. There was time to make changes. Yeah, it's really unfortunate. And, and um, for, Fernando, I mean, if you had been at the helm, I, I don't suspect any of this would have ever happened. And that's where, you know, the true leadership comes in. And you stand out as the kind of individual that, you know, you. I'm not saying that you would ever go back to work in Puerto Rico, but you could rehabilitate a program like that, right? You know, you've been program director. You've been now chairman for over a year. And, and you, you, you know how to rectify these things. Have you ever considered it? Well, we all have dreams. Correct. And uh, now, a dream doesn't mean that it's going to be a reality today or tomorrow. Could be a few days from now. I am happy where I am. And I have a full commitment to work at MCG and make uh, the program the best in the nation. But, you know, there is always an afterlife. And uh, Puerto Rico is always a dream for me. Now, I have to say that because we're good surgeons doesn't mean that we're good leaders. Because we're great educators, it doesn't mean that we're great leaders. Because we're good researchers, doesn't mean that we're good leaders. It really requires a combination and a group effort to build a program. And I think that that was the problem. We needed to sit down and look at the mirror and pay attention to who we are in academics. We love to train. We are happy neurosurgeons. We need to spend the time and the dedication to our residents. That's why we're in academics, for our residents. So if we don't spend the time to listen to them, to mentor them, to train them, then we shouldn't be doing this. Hmm. Now, Dr. Valley, this may be a complicated question, but listening to you speak today, I, I feel that you may be someone who can give a cogent answer. I, I wonder if as you speak about the perspective of the leader, the perspective of the leadership and the attending 
in a neurosurgical program and, and how that disconnect can form and how you as the leader can be on the lookout to prevent that or to rectify it when it's been identified, the disconnect between the leaders and the boots on the ground. Can you consider the perspective of the resident, of the soldier with the boots on the ground? You know, I'm currently a resident, and whenever we don't enjoy a part of our jobs or face a problem that we'd rather not face that we think is unfair or it shouldn't be this way or and so on, there's a constant tendency to just keep your head down, get the work done, deal with it, and get on because it's your job and no one wants to be a complainer. And perhaps 99 out of 100 times, that's the right attitude. You just put your head down and get through it. But that one in a hundred times, sometimes, as you say, there is a real problem. There is a true disconnect between leadership and the soldiers. And I wonder if you could speak to the trainees and to the younger people and give some kind of sense of how we from our end could identify one of those real situations and know oh, this might be a time where I should speak up and not just keep my head down, this might be a real problem. How can we identify those scenarios? Well, I mean, uh, this is a little bit complicated question, yeah. but, in, but in reality, I mean, the, the leadership needs to have an open system, uh, what I call an open door policy. I keep my door open and, you know, it may interfere with my daily work, but allows anybody to discuss a situation. And, uh, and, and by discussing an event, challenging the, the institution or the emotions on the part of this situation is a good way to engage everybody. I think that a resident can be afraid or used to the workload, which we all are, but we need to understand, the leader needs to understand that Changes happen, and they are for a reason. And at, at this stage, the resident should not feel threatened to discuss a concern because the leader must have an open policy. And what the resident needs to do is to get somebody's attention. I always say when, I, when there is a situation, a concern, I tell my resident, the first thing that you tell me, I have a concern. Get my attention. And then speak out. Because if you start giving me a story, I may start, uh, may, may daydream by the time that you're done. So get my attention from the get-go and keep it simple. Now, at the same time, if there is a problem, don't just, don't, just don't complain about it. Bring to the table a solution, mm. an alternative. It sounds a lot better. Excellent advice um, and excellent words for all of our listeners on, on both ends, from leadership down to early trainees. You know, Dr. Valle, as we've discussed uh, throughout this conversation, our hearts, of course, go out to everyone involved in this recent program closure, from, of course, the trainees who have to find new programs, to the medical students who lose those mentors, the neurosurgeons who will lose the trainees, and the people of Puerto Rico who lose access to an academic training neurosurgical program and all the benefits and wonderful care that that brings. Um, on behalf of Dr. Wang and myself, we're so grateful for you to come on today to discuss this delicate topic and to lend us your experience and your perspective on this. Um, so for everyone listening, thank you so much for joining us on the Neurosurgery Podcast.
Thank you.